So today we turn to Acts chapter 8. I want to read verses 1 through 24 before we turn once again to 1 Timothy 3 verses 1 through 6. Acts chapter 8. The church is new. The uh, Lord is ascended. The Holy Spirit has come upon the church. And the church in Jerusalem is growing, but not without opposition. The deacon, Stephen, has just been martyred in chapter 7. Acts chapter 8 opens. Saul was in hearty agreement with putting him to death. And on that day, a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Some devout men buried Stephen and made loud lamentation over him. But Saul began ravaging the church, entering house after house and dragging off men and women. He would put them in prison. Therefore, those who had been scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria, began proclaiming Christ to them. The crowds with one accord were giving attention to what was said by Philip as they heard and saw the signs which he was performing. For in the case of many who had unclean spirits, they were coming out of them, shouting with a loud voice, and many who had been paralyzed and lame were healed. So there was much rejoicing in that city. Now there was a man named Simon, who formerly was practicing magic in the city and astonishing the people of Samaria, claiming to be someone great. And they all from smallest to greatest were giving attention to him, saying, This man is what is called the great power of God. And they were giving him attention because he had for a long time astonished them with his magic arts. But when they believed Philip preaching the good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were being baptized, men and women alike. Even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued on with Philip. And as he observed signs and great miracles taking place, he was constantly amazed. Now, when the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit, for he had not yet fallen upon them, any of them. They had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they began laying their hands on them, and they were receiving the Holy Spirit. Now, when Simon saw that the Spirit was bestowed through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give this authority to me as well, so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have no part or portion in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Therefore, repent of this, this wickedness of yours and pray that the Lord, if possible, the intention of your heart may be forgiven you. 
For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bondage of iniquity. But Simon answered and said, Pray to the Lord for me yourselves, so that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. And now we turn to 1 Timothy chapter 3. Verses 1 through 6, Paul writes, Timothy, it is a trustworthy statement. If any man aspires to the office of overseer, it is a fine work he desires to do. An overseer then must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not addicted to wine or pugnacious, but gentle, peaceable, free from the love of money. He must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. But if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? And not a new convert, so that he will not become conceited and fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that your spirit would now illumine our hearts and minds to this word, that we would understand what your will is for the church and those who lead it. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. It really is amazing that at the age of 12, a boy whose arrival onto the scene of human history was announced by the angel Gabriel, who was conceived in the womb of his mother, not by a man, but by the Holy Spirit, who was heralded by the heavenly host of angels at his birth as a Savior who is Christ the Lord, and then worshipped by Magi from the east, all of this happening by the time he was two weeks old. It's amazing to find such a divine prodigy at the age of 12 in the temple, sitting at the feet of the teachers, both listening to them and asking them questions. You might expect rather to find them sitting at his feet and asking him questions. All around us today, we find boys and girls, young men, young women, struggling with impatience at their present circumstances. Children who are impatient with mom and dad impatient with their teachers, impatient just to grow up and get on with life, impatient to get the driver's license, to get the high school diploma, to get the job, to get the apartment, to get the boyfriend, the girlfriend, the ring. Beloved, the third chapter of Ecclesiastes opens with some very powerful and helpful counsel counsel 
that's important for the impatient among us to fix firmly in our minds and hearts. Helpful words. None of you remember this probably, but back in 1965, a band called The Birds impressed a helpful biblical lesson, actually, on the conscience of the whole Western world with their song, Turn, Turn, Turn. It's a great song. It has this melody that haunts you through the years. I can still hear the incredible guitar work here in my head nearly 60 years later. That song just never grows old. And the lyrics begin with the words of Ecclesiastes 3. To everything there is a season and a time to every purpose under heaven. To everything there is a season. Dear ones, let's never, never allow ourselves to become impatient with God for the keeping in a timely way of his promises. Let it sink into your ears and into your hearts today that good pastors and good elders are worth waiting for. They're worth waiting for. At the right time, God sends them. Men who aren't only trained and knowledgeable in the word of God, but also experienced in the Christian life and faith. Mature men, each with a good, long-standing, well-established testimony of God's grace in his life. Today's account of Simon Magus there in Samaria demonstrates, among other things, the peril of moving too fast. Even in the very sincere and proper pursuit of the growth of the church, sometimes people are baptized out of season, baptized too soon, as Simon of Samaria certainly was. His subsequent behavior became a reproach to his baptism and to the name of Christ. And sometimes people are elevated to church office too soon. As for instance, Diotrephes. In the third letter of John, Diotrephes clearly was ordained to church office way too soon. The beloved apostle John writes of him in verses 9 and 10 of 3 John. I wrote something to the church, but Diotrephes, who loves to be first among them, doesn't accept what we say. For this reason, if I come, I'll call attention to his deeds, which he does, unjustly accusing us with wicked words. And not satisfied with this, he himself does not receive the brethren either. And he forbids those who desire to do so and puts them out of the church. So here we have in this church officer, Diotrephes, a man who tolerates neither apostolic teaching nor the receiving of Christian brothers and ministers in their travels, nor those who so much as demonstrate the kindness 
of Christian hospitality in their own homes. Diotrephes puts them out of the church. He excommunicates them for doing good. In simple terms, Diotrephes, the church officer, is a control freak. He's a control freak. He's a self-conceited tyrant, elevated to the office too soon and deposed from it not soon enough. Now we here are very clearly a Presbyterian church. It's right there in our name, right there on the front of your bulletin. It's a very good word, Presbyterian. It's a word that describes the method by which Christ graciously governs his kingdom. He governs his people neither by one man's tyranny on the one hand, nor by the egalitarian democracy of the many on the other. Presbyterianism is the New Testament system of church government and its governance by trusted presbyteroi or presbyters. Literally, that Greek word presbyteroi means old men. It's governance by old men. Elders, in other words, elders. Governance by godly men who have some life experience under their belts. I've known men past the age of 90 whose health and other circumstances allowed them still to be serving on the session of their respective congregations. Past the age of 90. Some of them are still serving today, and we shouldn't be surprised to see this when we do see it. Because God pours out his gifts to the church in some pretty extravagant, long-lasting ways. As we see in the 92nd Psalm, like thriving palm, the righteous grows, like cedars tall in Lebanon. Those planted by the Lord shall in God's courts be seen. When old, they'll still bear fruit and flourish fresh and green and loud proclaim how upright is the Lord my rock. No wrong in him. God uses godly old men. Do you remember how old Moses was? when God first called him to his life's work. He was 80. He was 80 years old when he just got started in life. And when Moses died 40 years later, 40 years that changed all of human history, when he died, Scripture tells us of this 120-year-old man that his eye was not dim, nor his vigor abated. God gave Moses everything he needed to accomplish his work to the very last day of his life. My point is this. What the church needs in its leaders, yesterday, today, and always, 
What the church needs in its leaders is spiritual maturity. Not a new convert like Simon Magus was. New converts do well to sit a while at the feet of Jesus. New converts need to learn God's ways with men and nations, God's ways in human relationships, God's ways of problem solving. They need to learn how to crawl before they can walk, to walk before they can run. Otherwise, you end up with men like Simon Magus in the church and men like Diotrephes in church office. We need, as our pastors and elders, not new converts, but men well-seasoned. When you season your food, it tastes better, doesn't it? When you season your firewood, it burns hotter and brighter. Seasoned veterans are men who've been around long enough to see all kinds of things under all kinds of situations, under all kinds of fire and all kinds of opposition. And they've learned from those experiences, those hard experiences, They've learned important lessons and somehow they've lived to tell the tale. We want a pastor and elders who actually have been there and having been there before know what they're doing now. Now some of you here today are still very young and I want to tell you that your youth also has its advantages, provided that you use these years wisely and well. Let remind you, let me remind you that your pastor and elders today are the boys and young men of yesteryear. I know that's hard to imagine. But it's absolutely true. I was once upon a time a young man. I was once upon a time a boy. And you know what else? The boys and young men who are sitting here in this room today may be among the pastors and elders of tomorrow. It's just the nature of the case. So look around the room. If the Lord tarries, then you are looking at the pastors and elders and deacons of the 2030s and 2040s and 50s and beyond. And your children are going to be the pastors and elders and deacons of the early 22nd century. That is, they will, if you use these fleeting years of childhood wisely and well for the kingdom of God. If you sit a while at the feet of Jesus to grow strong. 
And the book of Proverbs, in fact, is tailored to help you do just that. Young people of, uh, of all ages. The book of Proverbs will help you. It's the Bible's handbook for young people who are still learning how to live their lives, not for themselves, but for the glory of the kingdom of God. What you young people bring to that glorious kingdom, even today, are the natural gifts of energy and zeal and resilience, agility of mind and body, and the capacity to learn. And frankly, young people, I envy you those things. I envy you. I don't mind these gray hairs that I have, but I paid for them out of the treasury of all those things I just listed. Youth is great. Youth is the gift of God, so by all means, enjoy it while you have it. But one of the typical deficiencies of youth is the shortage of self-knowledge. Self-knowledge. Now, young people today know a great deal about a great many things. I can't hold a candle to the knowledge of some people in this room about Hot Wheels and Legos and dinosaurs and rainbows and unicorns. But most of us don't know ourselves very well when we're young. We haven't been around long enough to get to know ourselves. That takes some time and experience. Whatever is chronological age, the pastor and elder needs to know himself. Needs to know himself well. And this self-knowledge is more than just... It's more a function of his spiritual maturity than it is of the calendar on the wall. It's not a matter of chronological age. Time is just the wineskin. The wisdom is the wine that it carries. Paul tells Timothy in chapter 4 of his first letter, Let no one look down on your youthfulness. There's the chronological age. Let no one look down on that, but rather in speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity. Show yourself an example of those who believe. That was Paul speaking to Timothy many centuries later. By the time of his death in 1747, at the age, the tender age of 29, David Brainerd, traveling on horseback and foot, had brought the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ to countless Indians of the Delaware tribe scattered throughout the howling wilderness of New Jersey and eastern Pennsylvania. He spent his youth wisely and well for the kingdom of God. By the time he was 20, Charles Haddon Spurgeon was pastoring a congregation in the Southwark neighborhood of London, England. Sometimes God is pleased to use young men. 
men who ripen spiritually very early in life to do extraordinary things for the kingdom of God, as Timothy did, and David Brainerd, and Charles Haddon Spurgeon. But a common thread between them, a common theme of their character, is spiritual maturity. They learned early in life what it is to be a distinctly Christian man. The Apostle Paul put his own experience this way in the 13th chapter of 1 Corinthians. When I was a child, I used to think as a child, speak as a child, reason as a child. When I became a man, I put childish things away. Now this blossoming out of spiritual infancy into spiritual maturity in Christ can happen either early or late in life. Sadly, many people, like Diotrephes, for instance, many people never seem to grow out of spiritual infancy at all, no matter what their chronological age. Conceited by his own natural gifts, drunk with the heady powers of his office, an unregenerate man, or even a new convert, may very easily fall into the condemnation of the devil. That is, his immature, unwise behavior gives the enemy an occasion to blaspheme the fair name of Christ, our Savior and King. Because while he's in that office, for as long as he's in that office, overseeing the church, he represents that Savior and King. A new convert just isn't ready for that responsibility. Not yet. What we're looking for in a pastor and elders are men who by grace have attained already a good measure of that maturity and who by grace are pursuing greater measures of it. All for the glory of God and the good of his church. as we conduct our ongoing search for a pastor, whatever his age, let's pay careful attention to the savor of his Christian character and experience. Is this man, whoever we happen to be looking at, is this man someone who wants to come to Texas to be a cowboy? Or maybe to be a tycoon, a Texas tycoon? Are there subtle indicators in his character to suggest that once he's in office, he'll drive and manipulate the flock of Jesus Christ under his care? If that's the case, then he's not ready. He's not ready. Or is he, on the other hand, a true shepherd? The kind of weather-beaten man whose seasoned experience with people and with life suggests that he will lead us and feed us and shelter us on our very worst days beneath the wings of Christ. What Paul first wrote of the apostles applies 
in these post-apostolic ages to the faithful shepherds of all the churches. He wrote, For we are a fragrance of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the one, an aroma from death to death. To the other, an aroma from life to life. And who is adequate for these things? Friends, that's really the question today. Who is adequate for these things? God grant us seasoned men who bear on their persons the sweet fragrance of Christ Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep. Amen. Let's pray. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for giving Christ Jesus to be the great shepherd of the sheep, the chief shepherd. Thank you, too, for providing your church through the ages, seasoned, chosen men to serve as elders of your people and the shepherds of your flock. We pray that you would raise up one from among your people to assume the duties of pastor here among us, that you would do it at the right time as we are confident you will, and that you would work in the hearts and lives and minds of the congregation here as we consider the men who come through. Nurture us, we pray, as a church. We thank you and are constantly amazed at your love for us in Christ Jesus. In his blessed name we pray. Amen.